On today's episode... But I always wanted to be Darren Stevens on Bewitched, which probably doesn't mean anything to you guys. But I wanted to be in the advertising industry. And in liberal arts, you don't really know what that means. And it's not a specific course of study. But I knew what I wanted to do. It was very intentional. Yeah, I never wanted to do philanthropy. Interesting. Pretty much. Um, I never volunteered a day in my life. It wasn't on my radar. I would stand in the second floor bedroom and look out over the property and the property next door, and I could see in my mind's eye the picture of everything as it stands today. Um, Our greenhouse, our farm, our driveway, our garage, all the things that didn't exist or that needed to be improved or changed or moved, I could see it in my mind's eye and it created a plan. ASAP, a Strategic America podcast. And this is the theme song. And we don't have much time, just need it ASAP. Okay, thanks, bye. All right, welcome back to another episode of ASAP. Um, this is Anna. You've heard me many a times before, but I am on the strategic communications team here at SA. And I have a new co-host with me today. This is uh, Jamie. Do you want to talk a little bit, Jamie? Yeah, um, I am a communications coordinator also on the strategic communications team. And I am happy to be joining you today. I'm very excited. Jamie's great. You guys will love her. And it's nice that we have Jamie on today because we're going to talk a little bit about an organization that does a lot of really great impact in central Iowa and on the lives of individuals. And Jamie works with this client. Um, So we're going to talk about Dorothy's House. And we have with us Kelly Markey, who is the founder and director. So we're really excited. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Could you tell people just a little bit of background about Dorothy's House? Yeah, so Dorothy's House, uh, our mission is to provide a safe place for what we call the practice of life for those people whose lives have been interrupted by human trafficking and exploitation. And over the years, uh, that definition has kind of broadened because we started very narrow in this space of sex trafficking. Uh, And as we've learned more and more about the crime and about the individuals affected by this, we realized that there were a lot of people who were not being counted uh, and who needed a lot of support and help, including men and including individuals who have custody of their children who are being exploited or trafficked, including the gender non-binary and LGBTQ community, a lot of uh, individuals outside of women uh, who make up the greatest percentage of survivors in our community who need our help. That's amazing. We, I mean, I love Dorothy's house. We've been so privileged to work with you and, um, we just love when you stop by, even though usually it makes us cry, <laughs> but That's in a my positive job. way. <laughs> well, we also leave pretty inspired, I yes. would say. Every time we're here and we get to chat with Kelly, we just leave with a ton of hope and a lot of passion for... Yes, definitely fuller hearts when we leave than when we came in. Well, I'm very glad you feel that way because it's great news for me because of the help that I get from Strategic America to to get the word of Dorothy's House out there and to support us in our initiatives. Um, and it just it means the world to us when people thank me, when they help me. <laughs> oh, well, we'll thank you just about any time you walk in the door. We're just so grateful. And thank you for being here again today. Um, we're going to talk about your story to me, and I think to anyone who would listen, is so interesting to go from marketing down to philanthropy, where not only do you work at a nonprofit, you founded a nonprofit in an area that I would say, I mean, you obviously have much more experience in this than I do, probably doesn't get a ton of attention otherwise. 
otherwise. Um, so if you don't mind, I would just like to wander down that road and start with, um, like, I know your career started at eBay, I think, or maybe it didn't start there, but it blossomed there, perhaps? I would say it ended there. Oh, yeah. interesting. Tell us more about that. So uh, when I I went to college, a liberal arts college for communications major, but I always wanted to be Darren Stevens on Bewitched, which probably doesn't mean anything to you guys. But I wanted to be in the advertising industry. And in liberal arts, you don't really know what that means. And it's not a specific course of study. But I knew what I wanted to do. It was very intentional. So my first job out of college was at Ogilvy & Mather Direct in Chicago, a big ad agency. And I worked in agencies like Foot Cone and & Belding um, and, and other agencies, smaller and larger in my career. For a while, took a side on the client side and worked for some major corporations uh, in marketing, but always loved the the agency side of the business. eBay was... Uh, a move at the end, went back to the client side, took a chance, took a pay cut, and uh, moved to California. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. So, what was that? Um, I mean, I guess you've kind of had experience now from the corporate because you were in under 200 employees, right? Yeah, and I was badge number 187 and was at eBay for almost five, for almost five years to the day. And when I left, we had just gone to 8,000 employees globally. Um, we started at 180, when I started, it was 187 people in a rundown building in San Jose, California, where we didn't even have like cubicles. And it, it was just chaos. And I was the first person that was hired, non-executive person that was hired that wasn't an engineer. Uh, so it was early, early days and just tremendous tremendous learning uh, for the whole entire time. I bet. Do you think that there is anything that you learned coming into, I mean, I guess eBay wouldn't be considered a startup back then, but pretty darn close. Oh, it was. It was. Absolutely. Yeah. It was part of the bubble. Um, it was absolutely in startup mode. And the first week that I was at eBay, uh, hired as a direct marketing person, the person that was supposed to build all the communications to our installed base, um, we had a an outage. The site, a site, the site was out for a week, and so all of everybody's in the whole entire company spent the week calling our sellers, making sure that they understood that all hands were on deck. We had people sleeping in the offices, working around the clock to bring the site back up. So we were absolutely in startup mode. It was fascinating. That's incredible because now Twitter goes down for an hour and everyone freaks out. eBay was out for a whole week. I can't even imagine how stressful that must have been. Well, and as a marketer, you know, they, they asked me to come in and figure out a way to send email communications to our installed base. And I looked at them and I said, you send about a hundred, about a million emails a month to your community through outbid notices, through uh item reminders, you know, communications as part of the selling process, the buying process every every month. And so why don't we leverage that channel and include marketing messages through some smart technology in those already? It's like, oh, no, you can't touch the site. So I was like, ooh, that never occurred to me. I was going to have to do this off the platform. Mm -hmm. And so nothing was going to be real time. Nothing was going to take advantage of all the tremendous technology available because the site was so unstable that we couldn't do anything that interfered with it. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So how did your team overcome that? 
Well, I was a team of one at the time. So, <laughs> wow, that's so, a lot of so responsibility. We did our best. <laughs> Easy to get everyone on board, though. Very true. Exactly. I love being the boss. Silver linings, right? <laughs> yep. That's awesome. It seems like you learned a lot that maybe helped you when you came time to make your own startup of a nonprofit. Well, I think probably one of the the characteristics that uh, help, has always helped me the most is being a problem solver and and not worrying about whether or not I know the answer today, but somewhere out there there's an answer, um, and I'm, I might just not know about it yet. So it's a great attitude. So. Obviously, you've had a very full career of marketing. What was the, and maybe it wasn't just one thing, but what made you think maybe I want to do philanthropy instead? Yeah, I never wanted to do philanthropy. Interesting. Pretty much. Um, I never volunteered a day in my life. It wasn't on my radar to help people. And the only charitable giving I had ever done up until I was 40, maybe, was through uh, my United Way giving through my jobs. Uh, and I didn't ever think very much about that either. It just seemed like the right thing to do. So when I moved back to Des Moines, when I, after I left eBay and spent some time goofing around, uh, I came back to Des Moines and I figured that at least charitable giving, um, and volunteerism would give me a way to connect with people in the community and meet friends and things like that. And I thought it might be an interesting career path in my next iteration. Uh, but I realized that if you want to be in a management position in a, a not-for-profit, you pretty much have to have a degree in philanthropy. And I didn't know that was a thing. Um, and all the advice I was given is just get out there and volunteer and see what comes of it. And so, volunteerism uh, was the way that I learned about the nature and severity of abuse against children in our community and the rate at which they're aging out of our care systems without the right resources and tools they need to be successful independently in our community. And it all felt so incredibly wrong to me. And it just was the the impetus that I needed, you know, the way that I thought I was going to feel like I was doing enough at the time was to become a foster parent. And that experience left me feeling so incapable and so challenged to do enough for the individuals that were in my care because of the resources that they needed that I didn't have access to. But I felt like if I had somebody who could stay up at night so I could sleep overnight once in a while and access to more people out there leveraging the resources in our community, I could help people better. And it, I, it obviously came to fruition. <laughs> so that's incredible. I just, um, were there any specific I'm just so interested in this transition from volunteering to foster parent to I'm going to, I wouldn't say take on the system, that sounds aggressive, but I'm going to make a change in the system and really find a way to help people. What what made you, or well, what inspired you in that way? So I talked to you a little bit about the, the nature and severity of abuse against children in our community and the fact that age 18, our systems are designed to give them a bus token and a phone number for a shelter. And because I had learned a little bit about how challenged these individuals were and how incapable they were and not ready for independence they were, I felt like that was the, the, the gap I needed to help bridge. And 
uh, as a foster parent, it solidified for me the importance, and I became very intimately familiar with the challenges that kids face who have this kind of abuse profile in their life. So I was flipping homes for a living as a foster parent, um, which I was never supposed to be a good home flipper, but I was supposed to be ready to, when I found Dorothy's house. And so one day as I was driving from uh, from one of my jobs, um, I went past a house that had a big banner on the side of it that was a phone number. It wasn't a for sale sign, was nothing more than just a giant phone number flipping three homes, foster daughter, two-year-old baby, and I just had no room in my life, and certainly not for a home in the hood. And so I called the number anyway, and a week later got in, and as I walked from the back of the house to the front door on October 13 of 2013, sun is setting through the windows, literally in a ray of light, I said, wow, this is Dorothy's house, and I know exactly what I'm going to do here. And so... What I believe is that I was always supposed to do what I do now. I just had to get ready for it. And that every job, every mentor, every music lesson, every sports team I played on, and the relationships that I built and the challenges that I faced in my life prepared me for what was an unknowable challenge. That's incredible. And I, I think that's the perfect place to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about all the wonderful work that you and your team do in the Des Moines community. Thanks. You're listening to ASAP with today's guest, Kelly Markey, the founder and executive director of Dorothy's House. To find out more about Dorothy's House and the work that Kelly and her team do there, visit dorothyshouse.org. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are here with Kelly Markey from Dorothy's House. And uh, we just kind of talked about how Dorothy's House came to be in the kind of movie moment that brought Dorothy's House into fruition. But we wanted to ask you, Kelly, how sex trafficking became the focus of your mission. You know, I was doing everything I could in my life. I just didn't need any more. And when I found that house... I, I believed that we would be doing this work for survivors of sexual exploitation and abuse in childhood because I didn't know anything about I'd never even heard of the term of sex trafficking at that point. But I invested so much time in learning about this crime and had an opportunity to participate in a week-long seminar about this issue in Iowa completely by accident and just thought that if we're going to try to challenge the systems of care in our community, we're going to do it for the people who need it the most, the most vulnerable populations who have nowhere else to turn and whose likely outcome without help is death. Um, and so that's how we picked sex trafficking. So once you found the house and you knew that your mission was going to be helping survivors of sex trafficking, what were? how did you even figure out the next steps to take it to a place where you had all these resources. I mean, it must have been a long journey. It was a very long journey. So that was when I found the house, it was in short sale and got pushed into foreclosure. And so I actually closed on the house in February of 2014. And for the couple of months in between, I had access to the house before the bank forced all the locks and stuff. And I just got a feel for being there. And I would stand in the second floor bedroom and look out over the property and the property next door. And I could see in my mind's eye the picture of everything as it stands today. 
um, our greenhouse, our farm, our driveway, our garage, all the things that didn't exist or that needed to be improved or changed or moved. I could see it in my mind's eye and it created a plan in my mind for what to do. And so as I started renovations after February, Literally, I mean, the house was a wreck. And and as I said, my, my time flipping homes was really designed to not make me afraid of all the work that needed to be done and that it could be fixed. And so I spent hours and hours and hours in that house thinking about it, praying about it, and then all of my extra time learning as much as I could about the crime, about the trauma-informed care systems that exist in our world that help people overcome trauma, the brain science behind brain trauma. I read everything I could read about about this crime and about how people heal from these kinds of traumas in their life. And it was a lot of time alone. And I started getting to the point in the renovations where the job started just getting a little bit bigger t- than me. And... Um, so I called a company, I called Window World, and every house, every window in the house, more than 50 windows had to be replaced. And I'm like, I'm nobody, and I'm trying to do this thing, and here's what I need, and will you help me? And a week later, they plopped a sign in my front yard and came and installed 50 new windows. I'm like, huh, look at that. And what was interesting, a lot of churches in our community at the time we're talking about starting to talk about this crime and it was really starting to build some momentum. And so I started reaching out to some of these church groups and all of a sudden people started showing up who knew how to do things harder than what I knew how to do and carrying things heavier than I could carry and um, all of those things. And so the momentum on the renovations really started picking up, which allowed me to start really focusing on operational questions and funding and the kinds of things that I knew I was going to have to do besides the house. Uh, And so by January of 2016, we were probably ready before January of 2016, but I had to be ready in my head. (laughs) And I had to have the courage to do something that people didn't know how to do. And we didn't know what the outcomes would be. And we didn't know all of the behaviors that we were going to be confronted with. Um, but I moved into the house right after Christmas, and, and I lived there for three months after we opened because I felt like I even needed to know how the job felt for our staff in order to hire people to do the work. So with two staffers and myself and $50,000, we opened our doors. It's incredible. Things must have uh, changed a lot since then. So how has um, Dorothy's house evolved from those first couple of months? Yeah, so five years later, almost, um, so much has changed. And the learning curve has been very, very steep. And we literally learn a lesson about how to improve what we do on behalf of other people from every single girl that comes through our doors. And I always talk about how you think you've heard the darkest most heinous story of what a human being can do to another person, and then you meet the next girl. And so that learning and the ability to leverage that learning and being a small agency and being the boss <laughs> allows us to be very flexible. Um, and we, we try to be flexible and make adjustments all the time, continuous improvement, but we try to have enough consistency that it feels comfortable to work there. Um, So it's knowable and predictable and and successful. And so I think some of the things 
you know, now we're finding girls in the beginning, you know, 90 days was a long-term stay with us. And now nine months is normal. And that t- amount of time is just critically important for people to learn the skills and start practicing the skills of coping and emotion regulation and behavior management in practice to be successful at them. Uh, And so longevity of stay, we're full all the time. And we now actually have a handful of girls who are in our transitions program. So they successfully completed our program and our curriculum and are being subsidized by us in independent living for up to two years post leaving our home so that they can actually practice the tools and make mistakes along the way in a supported way that one thing doesn't cause recidivism because that is the most likely outcome for these kids. And then the newest thing that we're launching, and I would say uh, increase the speed at which we launched this because of COVID, because over the summer we couldn't bring new people into the home, is our front porch program, where we are able to place survivors who are not females, not single females, in the community, in housing, subsidized housing, and be able to bring them the services and support and care that we do to our residential participants, but for men and for gender non-binary and LGBTQ community, for individuals who have custody of their children, for labor-trafficked individuals, um, any profile of survivor of this crime is somebody that we can consider helping. So this year, I mean, We've watched Dorothy's house go through a lot and everybody's gone through a lot. There's been a lot of hard times and a lot of change happening. How can listeners help you at Dorothy's house and the women and now uh, other men and uh, women with children and everybody that you serve? How can they help you guys out? Yeah, I'd love to say, you know, poor me, COVID (laughs) happened, um, but COVID happened to everybody. And I had to furlough my staff at the end of March, which was maybe the hardest thing I've done in this entire process. Uh, But we had three girls living with us, and we had to make sure that the fact that the world was turning upside down around us, we could not let the world turn upside down for them. And so literally like five years later, I moved back into the house essentially and made sure that they stayed on track. They were all far enough along in their program that I could kind of manage on my own. And two of my staffers pitched in and volunteered some time to help me get through that period of time. But we needed to provide them that stability while the world was becoming very unstable to not go backwards. And so all three of them are, you know, have successfully transitioned. And um, I think every morning when I woke up in the house or, you know, when I sort of went back to this sort of full-time care profile, which I hadn't done in a long time, I woke up kind of grousy and like, this isn't what I want to be doing and how I want to be spending my day, but forced myself to think, what is the one good thing that's going to happen today that's going to make this worth it? And now, um, knowing the trajectory that those girls are on, uh, my gosh, it was like the easiest thing I've ever done. And so we are completely reliant on this community to believe that what we do is important and to recognize the severity, that the pervasiveness uh, and how hidden this crime is. We need people to just believe it. And we are absolutely reliant on this community for all of our operations. And what's nice about that is that the 
avoiding some of the the federal money and and the the money that's out there that's available for this crime that's very hard to get. It also ties your hands a lot in terms of what you can do and who you can do it for and how you do it. And without those constraints, we get to do so much more. And and the ability to customize our solutions for individuals, for human being people, not for cases or clients, um, allows us to impact their lives in a way that's really meaningful to them. And it makes a difference. Absolutely. So where can people find you online so that they can learn more, donate, or maybe sign up to volunteer? So I'm super loath to send people to our, our website because it's being revamped as we speak. It's five years old, and it's not completely accurate in terms of current, um, but we're at dorothyshouse.org. Uh, and uh, we have a page online where you can donate online or gives information to mail uh, donations in. And then we are in the middle of a capital campaign to build our second home, and that is uh, builddorothyshouse.org. Great. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. I mean, we can't thank you enough for coming in and talking to us today. Again, people who thank me for helping me, this is the happiest thing in my life. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, well, that brings us to the close of another episode of ASAP. We will be back later, but thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to support Dorothy's House. ASAP, a Strategic America podcast, is produced inside the walls of Strategic America, a marketing agency located in West Des Moines, Iowa. Visit strategicamerica.com ASAP for more.